All right, we are in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We're in chapter 2, and our text there is going to be verses 18 through 29. So go ahead and open your Bibles or navigate on your device to Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. The topic this morning, Jesus warns the church in Thyatira that those who follow the teachings of a false prophetess he calls Jezebel can expect to be killed with death. The title of our message, For Whom the Jezebel Tolls. Let's have a word of <laughs> Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we appreciate the fact that we can sit here and read your word and study your word, uh, that we can do it with freedom, uh, freedom in you and freedom in our country. We thank you for that. We shouldn't take it for granted. We want to hear from you this morning, Lord, not the words of a man, but the word as the Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that I would not get in the way, but that I would help in some way uh, explain a few things so that you can reach into our hearts, discerning between the soul and the spirit, the innermost, most intimate place of our lives, to reveal the love of God through Jesus Christ and to give us a greater love for one another and for others and for the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. Who would you put on a list of the Bible's bad girls? Well, Delilah was loved by Samson, Israel's physically strong but morally weak hero. Some Philistine leaders approached Delilah and offered her an immense sum of money to find out the secret of Samson's strength so that they might be able to defeat him. Three times she asked him, and three times he gave her a false answer. Eventually, he told her that his strength resided in his hair. Delilah allowed the Philistines to shave his hair while Samson slept. When the Philistines attacked him, he found he could no longer defeat them, and he was taken captive and made to work like an ox turning a millstone. Potiphar's wife is unnamed, but she belongs on this list for sure. Her husband was Egypt's executioner. She had a thing for one of the servants in their household, the young Hebrew Joseph, son of Jacob. After making multiple unsuccessful sexual advances towards him, Potiphar's wife arranged a day on which to seduce Joseph, but he fled from her. Spurned, Potiphar's wife accused Joseph of an attempted sexual assault, and he was thrown into the Egyptian prison. Herodias and her very young daughter Salome conspired to incite the passions of Herod by having Salome perform an NC-17 rated dance in order to soften him up to ask him to behead their moral nemesis, John the Baptist. Delilah, Potiphar's wife, Herodias, and Salome were all bad, but perhaps the baddest of them all would be Jezebel. Now, we're going to talk about her this morning because in the church at Thyatira, there was a Jezebel-like prophetess who was seeking to seduce the believers. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jezebel is in church to seduce you into spiritual adultery and sexual immorality. And number two, Jesus is in church to keep you from spiritual adultery and sexual immorality. First of all, in verses 18 through 23, let's take a look at Jezebel. Now, in Thyatira, definitely a seduction was in progress. Jesus is going to use the word seduce, sexual immorality twice, and adultery. The believers in Thyatira were being seduced into committing both sexual immorality and spiritual adultery. The seductress was Jezebel. Just who was Jezebel? 
Was she a real woman or is this just a metaphor for the evil influence of some false doctrine? Well, before we see just who or what Jezebel was, we need to meet the saints in Thyatira. And so let's start in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Angel translates the word messenger. It is the pastor of the church who would be charged with the privilege and blessing of reading the revelation of Jesus Christ, the whole book, to his congregation uh, and have the special excitement of reading the particular letter to that congregation. Now, you might recognize Thyatira from an episode in the book of Acts. A famous female convert of the Apostle Paul's was from Thyatira. Paul encountered Lydia at Philippi, but she was there on business from her hometown. Charles Spurgeon says of her, and I quote, not only was Lydia a sort of first fruit for Europe, the first convert in Europe, but she probably also became a witness in her own city of Thyatira in Asia. We do not know how the gospel was introduced to that city. Very likely, Lydia was the herald of the gospel in her native place. Now, we read in the book of Acts that Lydia was a seller of purple. Dyes were incredibly rare and expensive in the ancient world. They were produced from certain mollusks and snails. Purple was a royal Roman color. It was used to identify those with very high rank and status. Perhaps that is why this is the only time in the Revelation that Jesus calls himself the Son of God. He is heaven's royalty. He is the one true God. No amount of purple dye could create a royalty that could compete with his. Rome and all its emperors would come and go. The Lord, of course, will reign forever and ever. Jesus next described his gaze by saying his eyes were like a flame of fire, and that could be translated a blaze of lightning. There's an X-man, Cyclops, who emits powerful beams from his eyes. Jesus is like that, spiritually speaking. In a few verses, he's gonna tell us he's going to kill some people. It's as if he can look upon them and with a blaze of lightning from his eyes, they're killed. Now, I'm not saying beams actually come from his eyes. His gaze is like that. It has inherent power. You don't wanna get into a staring match with Jesus. He's gonna win that. Do you, like to, do you like staring competitions? I like to do that with kids. It's the only thing I can beat them at. Uh, not very athletic, I don't do any sports and stuff, but man, I'm, a, I, I'm perfecting my staring skills. But Jesus, he's got that down. Then Jesus said his feet were like fine brass. The brass feet of Jesus remind you of the first proclamation of the gospel. Here's why. In the Garden of Eden, God told the devil that when Jesus came, Jesus would bruise your head, Satan, and you, Satan, shall bruise Jesus' heel. We interpret the bruising of Jesus' heel as his suffering on the cross. His suffering and his death defeated Satan. And so we say he simultaneously bruised the devil's head. Now we see Jesus with indestructible brass feet. They are his work boots. They're the feet that have walked on the earth in our place up the hill to the cross at Calvary. Refined through his suffering on our behalf, they are the brass that have bruised and will finally crush the devil's rebellion once and for all. 
Then verse 19, he says, I know your works, your love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Now, you can't help but compare Thyatira to Ephesus. Ephesus had works, but not love, and they had left their first works. Uh, Thyatira had works, and they had love, and Jesus said, the last are even more than the first, so they were growing in their love. And so they're getting a really high commendation from Jesus Christ. Their love is agape, agape love. It is self-sacrificing love that can only be produced in the heart of a believer by the presence of God in his or her life. And it can be produced in the heart of any of us as believers. It's not love that is a feeling. It's love that takes action, uh, self-sacrificial action in order to minister to others. Service is the word from which we get the word deacon. It was used, for example, of waiters who waited tables and were attentive to every need while remaining almost invisible. You know, nothing can ruin dinner more than a bad waiter or waitress. But nothing is really more fun than having a great waiter or waitress that anticipates your needs, knows what you, you know, they get you your meal, they do all that. I want you to think about that and relate it because that's what this word is all about, relate it to Christian service. We are to be great waiters and waitresses, ministering to others, anticipating the needs of others, meeting the needs of others, kind of remaining invisible while we do it so that they can do their thing while we do our thing. Uh, it, it's a simple illustration, but it's really pretty powerful. I wonder how much, uh, you know, I wonder what kind of a tip we would get for our service to the Lord sometimes, uh, you know, when we're maybe complaining a little because we're not being noticed. Well, you don't want to be noticed as a servant. That's the whole point of being a servant is that you're unnoticed. And so if anybody ever comes to me and says, well, I'm, you know, I'm just not getting any recognition, praise the Lord. God bless you. I wish I were you. You know, you should rejoice in that. Get the, get the least amount of recognition possible so that the Lord can recognize you in the last day. Uh, they had faith, it says. Now, we already know they were saved, so this must mean faithfulness. I love this word faithfulness, or this concept, I should say. You may not ever achieve what the world considers great things for God. You're only called upon, however, to be faithful in little things. All of us can be, but it's difficult. It's, it's hard sometimes to just keep doing the work of the Lord, to just get up every day and, and hit it hard again. Uh, but faithfulness is going to be rewarded, and that's all that's required of us, and all of us can do that. Patience, that's a word that indicates the hopeful waiting for Jesus Christ to return. Everything they did and the way they did it was done with an eye towards the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And nothing will excite your Christian service and works more than a genuine belief that the Lord could come at any moment. Now, verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, it's doubtful that Jezebel was her real name, she was a woman attending the church at Thyatira who was similar in character and conduct to the notorious Jezebel of the Old Testament. Jezebel appears in the Bible during the period of the divided kingdom, with Israel the name of the northern kingdom and Judah the name of the southern kingdom. 
in order to form an alliance with the Sidonians, King Ahab, not Ahab the Arab, but King Ahab of Israel, took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of their king, Ethbal. King Ethbal was a priest of Estarte, who in mythology was either the sister or the companion of the pagan god Baal. Whenever I read Baal now, I get confused because my whole Christian life and uh, every study I ever heard, he was called Baal. And then all of a sudden, about, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, I heard Pastor Chuck Smith teaching from the Old Testament, and when he got to the name, he called him Baal. And I thought, oh, what's going on? <laughs> and, and, and I think probably, I think probably that would be the the actual pronunciation into English, the, the pagan god Baal. But it sounds so weird to me <laughs> that I just, I just can't bring myself to do it. So if you're ever, I just am throwing that out there so that, you know, if you're ever listening to somebody on the radio and they start talking about Baal, they're not choking uh, or having, you know, gas or anything like that. They're, they're talking about the guy we call Baal. Uh, now, once enthroned as queen, Jezebel introduced the worship of Astarte and Baal to Israel. She persuaded Ahab to build a temple to Astarte in the capital city of Samaria. She supported 450 prophets of Baal and another 400 prophets of Astarte. Meanwhile, she systematically killed off any true prophets of God that she could get her hands on. She was a bad girl. It was Jezebel's guys whom Elijah confronted in a famous prophet cage fight. After defeating the 450 prophets of Baal because he could call down fire from heaven when they could not, Elijah, and I quote, led them down to the Kishon Valley where he killed them. Man, being an Old Testament prophet was serious business. They were killing people. And so this, this is one of the great stories of the Old Testament. The prophets of Baal are going through all their rituals and stuff to try and get fire to come down from heaven on this sacrifice. Elijah is making fun of them, uh, you know, and then all of a sudden he prays and he brings fire down and then he kills 400. How, how long does that even take to kill 450 guys one at a time? I mean, this is, this is a bad dude. But Jezebel said, hey, I'm going to kill you. And he fled for his life out into the wilderness. This was the famous episode in Elijah's life where he said, why am I even serving you? I'm the only one. And God said, yeah, no, that's, none of that's true. But he was afraid. He had just defeated 450 prophets of Baal in a public display of the Lord's power but he was afraid of Jezebel. Jezebel was the Bible's bad girl. Now, fast forward about 1,000 years. Thyatira was noted for its many trade guilds. Think union, but really, 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 really serious union. You could not work if you did not belong to the guild representing your trade. Each guild was dedicated to and worshipped a pagan god or goddess. That was just the culture. Each year, you were invited to attend a feast to the god or goddess of your guild. At that feast... The food you were served was openly offered as a sacrifice to the idol of the god in a pagan religious ceremony. They, there was no hiding it. There was nobody embarrassed about it. It wasn't a matter of, hey, was this meat sacrificed? It was part 
of the festivities. And at that feast, the god or goddess was honored by rituals that involved having sex with the temple priestesses. They were like X-rated bachelor parties complete with prostitutes that were provided for the men. It was a men-only thing, of course. And, and this is, so this is what happened every year in Thyatira at the trade guild party. Christians understandably had trouble with this. How far could or should they go as members of the trade guild? If you didn't belong to the trade guild, you couldn't work. Uh, you were economically destitute. But if you were a member, you were required to go to this annual feast at which these things took place. As they were struggling to answer these questions, a woman in the church claimed to receive prophecy from God that encouraged them it was all right to partake of all the pagan practices. Jesus says, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, teaches and seduces my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Go ahead, go to the feast, participate in the sacrifice, and participate if you want to in the immorality. Thus says the Lord, said Jezebel. Her so-called prophecy was seducing saints away from God to idols, leading them not just to commit sexual immorality, as bad as that was, but into spiritual adultery by worshiping idols. It says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. She did not repent. Jesus, who can, in a sense, shoot lightning bolts out of his eyes and kill sinners, he was long-suffering with her. The Lord desires repentance from sin because he knows the consequences of continuing in sin are so extreme. The time he gave her put believers in danger, but they were not defenseless. They had his word and they had his warning. Lots of terrible things happen every day on this planet. God remains long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish eternally. It's dangerous out there while he waits, but we are not defenseless as Christians. We have the word of God to lead, guide, and strengthen us. What God has said in his word, he cannot contradict anywhere else. And so we need to, <laughs> the battle for the Bible, the authority of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible is super important because if it is not the authoritative word of God, then we have nothing really to stand on and anybody can believe anything. But because it is the word of God, then I know everything I need to know for life and godliness. And when somebody says something that's contrary to the word of God, even in the name of God, I know that it can't possibly be true. And we have the warnings of the word in which we are told to judge prophets and prophecies to see if they line up. And so we don't allow it on Sunday morning because we have a different purpose, but on Wednesday nights we have, normally we have an open time of uh, participation where uh, folks are encouraged to speak in tongues or to uh, come forward with words of prophecy or stuff like that. And, and you know, if somebody were to stand up at one of those meetings and say, thus says the Lord, uh, you're able to have sex with whoever you want to whenever you want to. Well, we would certainly judge that prophecy as a false prophecy. Uh, the ushers would deal with that, secondly. <laughs> but we would say, well, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, that's, that's impossible because of the word of God. That cannot be true. Uh, and, 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 you know, 
the sad thing is, so many times in, in some churches, people get up and they prophesy, they say crazy things, and they're really just, you know, no one even listens to what they're saying. But we pay close attention to what they're saying and their phone calls. <laughs> We're screening that call right now. But anyway, uh, so, so, you know, we, we don't need to be afraid of the gift of prophecy because it cannot ever contradict the Word of God. And we judge it by the Word of God. And so we're, 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 you know, it's, it's a dangerous world out there, but we're never defenseless. Now, the literal wording of this is she did not wish to repent. It was a conscious free will decision. It kind of sort of indicates that maybe some of the believers were going to her and saying, hey, you need to repent of this, although the bulk of them probably weren't because Jesus said, hey, you allow this to happen. Back on repentance, you can repent. It's up to you, aided by the grace of God by which he seeks to draw all men to himself. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, his grace is here operating on your heart to free your will so you can repent and be saved. God takes the initiative for the purpose of bringing all people to salvation by calling all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel, and then he enables those who hear the gospel to respond to it positively in faith. Now, not everyone is saved. We're not universalists. You must believe. The Bible says he's the savior of all men, especially those who believe. But the idea that a person cannot repent is not biblical. You can repent of your sin, aided by the grace of God. And if you're in sin, I sincerely hope that you would. Uh, verse 22, indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Is great tribulation the great tribulation? No, I think what Jesus meant he explains when he says, I will kill her children with death. He says, they're headed into a time of trouble, and here's what it is. I'm going to kill her children with death. Back to the original Jezebel, after King Ahab's death, she ruled through her two sons, first Ahaziah, but he was killed in battle, then Jehoram, he was killed by Hayu, when then confronted, and then he confronted Jezebel in Jezreel and urged her servants to kill her by throwing her out the window. They complied, tossing her out the window. They left her corpse on the street where it was then eaten by dogs. Only her skull, feet, and hands were left. I feel like we live in a kinder, gentler time when it comes to biblical things. Now, the Thyatira and Jezebel's followers and advocates were considered her spiritual children, her spiritual sons. Jesus said, I'm going to kill them with death. Now, there are several references in the New Testament to folks being disciplined by God by being killed with death. You remember Ananias and Sapphira. They sold their land, and then they lied about the amount of the proceeds they were donating to the church in the book of Acts. God struck them dead one after the other for their lie in order to keep the church pure. In 1 Corinthians 11, some of the believers were misbehaving at what was called the agape feast that preceded the taking of communion or the Lord's Supper. Apparently, the early church, especially in Corinth, they had a Sunday night service, and at that service, before the communion service, they would have what we would call a potluck, but people were hoarding their food. The wealthier were keeping their food, and the poor were not getting a, a share. And some of the people were, glutton, were gluttons and drunkards. They were getting drunk before they took communion. And Paul the Apostle indicates 
And because of that, some of you are sick and some of you are dying and have died. Uh, and so it seems that at least in the early church, it was not unusual for God to kill with death. Now, the effect of God killing believers was that all the churches know, I am he that searches the minds and hearts. Duh, yeah, they know that spiritual adultery cannot be hidden from him and that sexual immorality can never be condoned by him. Those who remain separate from spiritual adultery and sexual immorality are assured that a reward is waiting them when it says Jesus will give to each one of us according to our works. Let's talk about us. It's obvious our culture is sexually immoral and it's getting worse and not better. Let me give you an example of how I know it's getting worse. Back in 2004, a study from the Harvard School of Public Health found that a decade of what they termed ratings creep allowed more sexually explicit content into films, suggesting that movie raters grow more lenient in their standards over time. Rich Taylor, a spokesman for the Motion Picture Association, pointed out that the standards for judging acceptable depictions of sex in American society constantly change and that it's not surprising if it changes for movie ratings as well. I'm not saying you can't go to the movies. I'm just using it as an example. I'm saying that movies might be one seductress you should look out for because of the ever-relaxing standards of sexual conduct. It's clear that apart from revival and a return to biblical morality, the world is going to get worse and worse, and that R-rated movie uh, that has sexual content, that sexual content's gonna be worse and worse and worse all the time, drawing you in uh, in a sexual seduction. More to the point, we should ask, is Jezebel in church? Well, she is to the extent that we have ratings creep by tolerating sexual sin in the church. We are called upon to abstain from all sexual immorality. That's a quote from 1 Thessalonians. Last week, I quoted Dr. William Welty, who says of this Greek word, sexual immorality, this all-encompassing word contains within its meaning all concepts of non-marital, homosexual, and heterosexual behavior. Now, maybe it's just me, but I think that because there are so many extreme sexual perversions out there that things like premarital sex and heterosexual adultery have become almost run-of-the-mill and so easily excused in the church and by the church and by Christians. There may not be a Jezebel in church uttering prophecies she claims are from God, but there can be a Jezebel spirit that minimizes certain sexual sins. I'm just gonna say this, I'll get in trouble for it, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Generally speaking, I don't, I'm not, I don't know about our church, I think our church is on a little bit of a higher plane, I, I do. Um, but I think generally speaking, people have decided that homosexual uh, sin is worse than heterosexual sin. And you know what? Sin is what? It's sin. And so, uh, you know, the people who are committing heterosexual, oh, oh homosexuality, oh, it's gross, a gross perversion. The empire, Rome fell because of homosexuals. Ugh. Are you committing sin? Yeah, but it's, you know, okay, everybody does that. And, and so we need, to, we need to get away from these kinds of labels and get back to God's standard of sexuality, which is uh, not the world's. It's not a matter of having higher standards than the world. That's easy. It's a matter of having and maintaining God's standard. With regards to sexual behavior, 
It's wisely and lovingly restricted by God to be enjoyed within biblical marriage that is monogamous, heterosexual, and meant to last as long as you both shall live. That's the gold standard of marriage and sexual behavior. And it's never going to change no matter how Jezebel our culture becomes. Anything out of that is sin. Whatever's within that is what we're to proclaim. Now, verse 24 through 29, Jesus is in church to keep you from spiritual adultery and sexual immorality. We saw in chapter one that Jesus walks in the midst of his churches on the earth. Jezebel's in church spewing false prophecies, but Jesus is there ministering to his believers. He says in verse 24, now to you I say in the rest, in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. Her prophesying was the depths of Satan. Her source was not divine, but devilish. Just because a person says, God told me this, or they get up and say, thus says the Lord, we can't take that as gospel, luckily, Thankfully, we have the Bible, we have the word of God, and we say, okay, you say this, God says this, who should I believe, you or God? I'm going with God every time. It's like a no-brainer. It says, as they say, and that probably refers to the satanic label those who opposed Jezebel and her followers put on her teaching and ministry. Jesus promised them, I will put on you no other burden. This is the same Jesus who promised, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There are burdens to bear, but they need never be borne alone. Jesus bears them with us. It comforts me to realize that Jesus knows life can be a burden. Circumstances need not cancel out my joy or rob me of walking in victory, but there are times of burden as well as blessing. There are times of being abased as well as of abounding, and Jesus is with me in and through all of them. Verse 25, hold fast what you have till I come. Holding fast to God's word in Thyatira meant refusing to attend the feasts in these guilds, and it would mean the loss of business and economic and social standing. I mean, you'd be ruined. The things you can hold fast to till Jesus comes must therefore be spiritual blessings in Jesus that can never be taken from you. We are to consistently value the spiritual over the material, no matter the cost. Verse 26, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. Overcoming these perils and pitfalls is the normal Christian life. Every believer has enough discernment and enough discipline to be an overcomer. We just need to put it into action and be faithful. Falling prey to false teaching of any kind distracts and derails you from your works. We're not saved by works, but after we are saved, we are to discover the good works God has before ordained that we should perform in his power. The end he speaks of here would be whenever you see Jesus face to face. Seeing him will mark the end of your burdens and the end of your works in the sense that you're gonna receive your reward for them. The quote here is from Psalm 2, where God the Father promises his son he will one day rule over the nations of the world. We call it the second coming of Jesus Christ, since in his first coming, his physical rule over the earth was rejected. Is Jesus ruling the earth from Jerusalem right now? No. Is he the sovereign Lord over the universe? Yes. 
but he is not physically ruling the world the way he will in the future. The revelation of Jesus Christ, this book we're studying, builds up to it, takes us through the church age, then through the seven years of the tribulation in great detail to the Lord's triumphal return in chapter 19 to rule the world for a thousand years. The promise to believers here is that we will share the rule promised by God to his son, uh, to his son excuse me, in Psalm 2. It's a promise we will be returning with him. Why a rod dashing the potter's vessels? Check any reference to ancient Thyatira, and it will mention that although there were many industries, many guilds, pottery was one of its chief industries. The Thyatirans who were in those guilds, like the potter's guild, were suffering persecution. The world was lording over them. But one day they would rule the earth with the Lord. Just as pottery cannot withstand being dashed with a rod of iron, the nations will not be able to withstand the righteous rule of Jesus Christ and his resurrected followers. There's coming a time, the kingdom of heaven on earth, when righteousness will rule, when there won't be any rebellion. There won't be anybody doing anything wrong because immediately they'll be judged for it. There won't be the United Nations trying to figure out what to do. There will be Jesus Christ doing it, and it will all be right and good for everyone. And it says, I will give him the morning star. Now, first, let's identify the morning star. In our everyday world, Venus is called the morning star because when Venus rises, it means the sun will follow very soon and a glorious new day will begin. In the Bible, morning star becomes a personal title. Interestingly, the first person to lay claim to this title is the devil. In Isaiah 14, we are introduced to Lucifer. The Hebrew is Halel, and it means light bearer, shining one, or morning star. It's the only place in all the Bible Satan is called Lucifer. It describes him at the time of his fall into sin. It therefore probably isn't a name. Lucifer probably is not the name of the devil. We like to say, and I probably said it too, that you know, the devil, his, his original name was Lucifer, but now we know him as Satan, the adversary. Uh, it's a description that he aspired to. He wanted to be the morning star. He wasn't the morning star. He wanted to be the morning star. He wanted to be prominent in the heavens. It fits what we learn about him in Isaiah that he said, I will ascend to the most high. He wanted to be that zenith. His desire was to be like the morning star and rise. Instead of rising, of course, he fell. Later in the Revelation, we're going to read this, I, Jesus, am the bright and morning star. Satan wanted to have this title, this name, but it doesn't suit him as a rebellious, lying murderer. Jesus Christ's second coming will mean God's light is about to shine forever on the universe, making all wrongs right, wiping away all tears, first by establishing his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years, ultimately with the creation of the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no sun or moon because Jesus is the light of that place. He is the morning star and the sun of eternity. What does it mean, I will give he who overcomes the morning star? It means that we're going to be with Jesus when he appears in his second coming. He will bring us with him. And we know from reading ahead, we peeked ahead, that at the second coming in chapter 19, 
we're going to enjoy the long-delayed marriage supper of the Lamb. We're coming back for our wedding feast where Jesus is the bridegroom and we are his bride. Thinking about that reminds us that as the bride of Jesus Christ, the betrothed bride, the engaged bride, we should keep ourselves from spiritual adultery and from sexual immorality. I, I think the normal expectation of any engaged couple is that you are now exclusive to each other, keeping yourself for that person. You don't get engaged to go out and play the field and have multiple sexual partners and do that. You, you have an expectation of purity. And so the Lord is saying, you need to keep yourself from sexual immorality and from spiritual adultery because after all, you're my bride. You're coming back with me in the second coming. We'll enjoy our marriage feast on the earth and then the kingdom for a thousand years and then eternity after that. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit of God talks to every church everywhere throughout history through the reading and stuttering, studying rather of this letter. He talks directly to every believer, to every backslidden believer, and every non-believer who hears these words. His grace is sufficient to draw you into his presence so that he might minister to you. What has he said to you today about the pursuit of holiness and the seduction of Jezebel in these last days? Think about that. Let's pray.